Well, good morning and welcome to our joint worship service with Christian Bible Church and Grace Bible Church. My name is Pastor Trey Sheffer, and I'd invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. We will be in Luke chapter 15, looking at three wonderful parables, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable known as the prodigal son. If you will join with me in prayer, and then we'll get started. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for um, your Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for those of us who are in Christ that we can say, along with John Newton, that uh, I once was lost and now I'm found. We thank you that you are a God who seeks after us, that you seek after the lost, and uh, that you keep seeking us until you have found us. Thank you, God, that you draw us unto yourself, that you woo us by your Spirit. For no one can come to your Son unless you draw them. God, I pray today uh, that you would help us to realize in a fresh way that we have been sought by you and found by you personally, and that you have rejoiced even in our salvation in heaven. God, we also ask that as we reflect upon your seeking and saving love, uh, that you would grow our love for those who have yet to be found by you. God, help us to go to them as you came to us and to look for ways that we can care for them and ultimately share the gospel with them. And so be with us now uh, by your spirit, and uh, we ask it in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. Well, it was a couple summers ago that I met my family, my parents, and my sister and her family in Colorado, and we spent a few days in the small ski town of Winter Park. We decided to go up the mountain on the ski lift to take a ride down the mountain uh, on these uh, little scooter type things. And so as my mom was preparing to get on the ski lift, um, she was unprepared for it, and the ski lift actually sort of hit her in the lower back, and it sort of shocked her and sort of startled her. And so as she was on the way up the mountain on the lift, about 100 yards into the ride, uh, she dropped her purse. And so down the purse goes into uh, the, the forest, and of course, as she got to the top of the ride, she let the attendants know, hey, I dropped my purse. And they said, no worries, we'll send somebody to go uh, look for your lost purse. And so we all eventually made it to the top of the mountain, and we decided to have some fun. So we rode the ride a few times, and we were back at the top of the mountain when it began to rain. And so uh, we all sort of huddled together, and they said, the, the ride is closed because of the rain, and so uh, we'll send some buses to get you down. And so the buses eventually came, and we gathered uh, into the buses, and as we were about to leave, my dad stands up, and he says, I can't find my hearing aids. And so he bolts out the door of the bus, and I instinctively follow him, and the buses leave with the rest of the family. And so there we are, uh, having had two items lost on the day, and so my dad and I searched for a number of minutes, uh, seemingly quite a while, when eventually he approaches me with a sort of sheepish look, and he says, Trey, I found my hearing aids. And I said, great, where did you find them? Uh, and he said, well, I found them in my back pocket. And I said, okay, Dad, no problem. I'm glad that that which was lost has been found. Let's go back down and let's see about Mom's purse. <clears throat> and so we ride the bus down to the mountain, and uh, another joyful occasion, uh, my mom's purse, which had been lost, had been found. And so we were all rejoicing at the good news. Uh, two things lost, two things found. 
the day was looking brighter. And so I think my dad said, hey, let's go get some ice cream. Let's celebrate. And so we were headed to the ice cream shop when one of my kids said, dad, I need a, a jacket or I need a hat. Something like that, something from the car. And I said, okay, well, uh, I'll take you to the car and uh, we'll go get it. And we all had, uh, had traveled in my mom's vehicle. And so I said, mom, can I have the keys to your car? And she said, sure, let me look at my purse. And so she's looking and she's looking. And after about 30 seconds, I could tell she's not finding her keys. And so she said, I can't believe it, but I have lost my keys. And I said, are you kidding? Three items lost in one day? And at that point, I sort of felt like someone was gonna jump out and say, smile, you're on candid camera. Uh, but unfortunately that didn't happen. And so my mom and I go to the car and the car is unlocked. And so we're looking for her keys throughout the car. We can't find it. And eventually my mom says, Trey, why don't you look in the purse? Maybe I just can't find the keys in my purse. And so I, I look and I look and there's a small zipper pocket uh, sort of hidden away. And I unzip that pocket and lo and behold, that which was lost had now been found. I found the keys and she said, oh yeah, I put those in that place so I wouldn't lose it. <laughs> well, rest assured, uh, I think we all know the sinking feeling of some item of value. Maybe it's a phone or your wallet or maybe a piece of jewelry uh, when you can't find that item. And we also hopefully know the joy that we feel when we find those items. Well, this morning we'll see three parables in Luke chapter 15, and uh, that's what these parables are all about. Three items that are lost, a sheep, a coin, and a beloved son, and three items that eventually are found. And the point of the parables overall is simply this. We see God's joy when lost sinners repent and are found. And that's the overarching thrust of the three uh, parables. So let's begin, if you have your Bibles, let's look in verses 1 and 2 at the setting. Because the setting of the parables uh, really help frame and help us understand what's going on. And so starting in verse 1, Luke writes, Now the tax collectors and sinners were drawing all drawing near to him. And so here we see the first group in the setting, in the context and it's important that we see the circumstance from which the parable arises because Jesus will address uh, these two groups uh, later in the parable. So in verse 1, we see those who are essentially spiritual out outcasts. They are, uh, number one, the tax collectors. And so these were Jewish people working for their Roman oppressors. And so you may th uh, think of uh, how much we like IRS auditors. That's about how the Jews looked at tax collectors. And then uh, a group of people that Luke simply calls sinners. And I think he means these were people who were outward and overt in their sin. And ironically, these people were not avoiding Jesus, but they were flocking to Jesus. They were listening intently to Jesus. Every word of Jesus to them was sort of like a, a life-giving oasis in a spiritual desert. So that's the first group. You have the sinners, and they're listening to Jesus intently. But in verse 2, we see the second group. Uh, Luke continues, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. 
And so in stark contrast to the divinely drawn sinners repenting and drawing near to God through Jesus, we see the self-righteous, outwardly obedient, unaware of their need to repent, religious leaders complaining. They're grumbling. How dare Jesus spend time with people like that? Former pastor R.C. Sproul writes on this point. He says, keep in mind that the Pharisees were separatists and advocated a doctrine of salvation through segregation. And so Jesus's behavior scandalized them. In fact, earlier in Luke 7, the same group of peoples uh, uh, called Jesus a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And that was not a compliment. Churches, may I just pause for a moment and ask, are we a friend of sinners? Whoever it may be in our little town that we would be considering as sinners, could we be guilty of the same charge? Do we welcome them? Do we receive them into our lives, into our families, into the church and the life of the church? Jesus was a friend of sinners, and the religious leaders hated the fact that he welcomed them. And so clearly there are two groups here uh, that could not be any more uh, opposite, right? Any more different from one another. So think, and I think Pastor Josh will like this, think about Ohio State fans and Michigan fans, right? Two groups of people. Now, both of them will be depicted throughout all three parables. And so then the question becomes, how does Jesus respond to uh, the criticism? Well, how he responds is with three parables. And I would suggest that the parables have the same basic structure, more or less, although the third is more comprehensive. And they all basically make the same general point, And that is that God seeks after lost sinners and he rejoices when they are found. And so should we. And so what I want to do with my remaining time is to read the first two parables. So I hope you still have your Bible open. We'll start in verse 3. Uh, we'll read the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. And then I want to quickly walk through about four common features of these two parables and then uh, kind of peek ahead a bit to the third parable, which also shares these features. So let's read again, starting in verse 3. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has one uh, lost one of them does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. And now he applies it in verse 7. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons. And I think Jesus is speaking here tongue-in-cheek to the religious leaders. Than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 8. Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house? And seek diligently until she finds it. 
And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I lost. Again, he applies it at the end of the parable. Verse 10. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so I just want us to see quickly sort of four um, overarching themes, sort of four common features, both in these parables and in the parable to come. So uh, feature number one, in each parable, we see that each parable begins with a person who owns or possesses some item of value, right? So if you look at verse four, you'll see that the shepherd or the man owns sheep. Of course, in verse eight, it's a woman who owns uh, 10 coins. Now these coins would most likely be worth about one day's worth of wages. And so uh, there's sheep, there's a coin. And in Josh's parable, it's going to be a man, a father, who possesses, in a sense, two sons in verse 11. And then notice also that with each parable, the items increase in value. And so sheep are valuable, valuable certainly, but coins are worth a day's worth of wages. Those are also more valuable. But then third, of course, not nearly as valuable as a person, as a beloved son. And so then there is a person who owns or possesses an item of value. Secondly, we see in each parable that one of those valuable items is then lost. And so we see in verse 4, Jesus says, if if that man loses just one of those sheep. And so one sheep is lost. In verse 8, we see one coin is lost by uh, the housewife. And in the final parable, we see that, well, one of the, the man's sons is lost. Uh, in a sense, he, is, uh, he goes uh, sinfully wayward. In fact, in verse 13, it says there, he squandered his property in reckless living. And so he too is lost. Now, I would suggest that the items represented here are the spiritually lost. They are the tax collectors. They are the sinners. They are those who have yet to be made right with God through faith in Jesus. And so a person owns or possesses something of value. That item is then lost. One of the items is lost. And then number three, in each parable, the owner searches diligently. The owner searches for the item until that item is found. And so if you take a look at verse four, the shepherd is said to, and I quote, go after the sheep. The woman in verse eight, the Bible says, seeks diligently for the coin. And of course we see it even in the father, he runs and he embraces the returning son. In other words, it's not like the shepherd uh, just waits for the sheep to wander back on its own. It's not like the woman just assumes the coin will, well, someday it'll just eventually show up. No, that which is lost needs to be found in the owner goes after the item of value. Both in the parable of the sheep and the parable of the coin, we we see that the owner searches, both the the shepherd and the woman, they search for the item, and in two circumstances it says, until he or she finds it. I don't know if you've ever been in this position before where you've lost something, and, and so maybe you get your whole family to search for it. I know it happens to me regularly. Kids, I can't find my phone. Kids, I can't find my wallet. 
let's go searching. And so we go searching the cars and we go searching in the house. And I won't let them stop until we find that item because it's valuable. The same is said in these parables. And then fourth, in each parable, when the item of value is found, well, what happens? Well, we see in the parables there's rejoicing and there's a party, there's celebration. And so if you look in verses five and six, we have this tender picture. The shepherd carries the sheep on his shoulders and he is said to do so rejoicing. He calls a party. He says uh, to his friends and neighbors, rejoice with me. Of course, we see almost the exact same thing verbatim in verse nine. The woman says, come rejoice with me. And very clearly in Joshua's parable, we see the joy of the father. In fact, the word celebrate appears in that parable four times. And so clearly, when that which is lost is found, it is a cause for celebration. This then is the point of the first two parables, especially. We saw that Jesus applied it in verses 7 and in verses 10, right? Just so I tell you, there's joy uh, before the angels of God when one sinner repents. And so it's like Jesus is responding to his critics. And he says, God is joyful. Heaven celebrates when a sinner repents. Why aren't you? God is more pleased when just one tax collector, just one sinner truly repents and is made right with me than when 99 of you self-deceived, self-righteous Pharisees and scribes refuse to do so. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to ask ourselves a few questions from these uh, opening parables. Do we have God's heart for the lost? Do we seek after them as he seeks after them? Do we rejoice when they're found? Are we unrelenting in our search like he is? In fact, Dr. Albert Moeller uh, says this. He says, the church has many reasons to rejoice. But the thing that ought to cause the greatest rejoicing in the church is when a sinner repents of his sin and comes to faith. And so now I'm going to pass the proverbial baton to Josh. I invite you to uh, look in your Bible at verse 11 as Jesus gives us one more parable that has a twist to show the religious leaders what they're really like. And so if the first two parables portray, in a sense, the tax collectors and the sinners, then the final one, uh, I think, highlights and emphasizes the Pharisees and the scribes. So Josh, now's your time. Why don't you come and take it away, my friend? Thanks. Good morning, and thank you to Pastor Trey, and welcome everybody from... Grace, it's good to be with you this morning, and I just really want to say that, for one, I appreciate your church and the work that you guys do, and I would say we are churches who share in spreading the gospel in this community and being light in this community, and I just have so much appreciation for Grace. Carrie and I and my wife had some friends uh, from my former church in Minnesota with us last weekend, and they were asking about the church, and I, I mentioned Grace a couple of times. Um, just because of how closely united I think our churches are. And I also very much appreciate Pastor Trey. Um, he's become a friend over the last year and a half that we've been here in Cisna Park. And we have coffee almost every week. And uh, I just really appreciate him. Um, although I will say, 
I thought your sermon was going to have a lot more references to Ohio State football. I feel like you oversold that a little bit, but um, I appreciate his treatment of the text. Uh, so I have the second, a uh, little more than half of the passage. Um, I'd like to read that to start off, beginning in verse 11. Jesus is speaking, and he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older brother was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. The rejoicing over finding that which is lost, as Pastor Trey talked about, the celebration over finding that which is lost. These parables are all powerful stories which point us to the redeeming love of God, that apart from Christ, we are lost. And there is rejoicing when the lost become found. This last parable is oftentimes referred to as the prodigal son, though the word prodigal is never found in the story. The word prodigal is an adjective which refers to a wasteful or lavish spender. Although, when we refer to it in this parable, oftentimes we tend to mean more rebellious or wayward when we're talking about this 
younger son. In the parable, the prodigal son asks his father for his inheritance. Quite the request to make during the lifetime of a parent. Both in the first century and today, such a request would be offensive and inappropriate. You would have been risking being disowned. But the father agrees to divide his estate and gives half to the younger son. Now when the prodigal son takes the money, he goes off to a faraway land, as the text tells us. He squanders his money on reckless living. And without money, a famine hits. And without any resources, the son is forced to hire himself out as a pig farmer. Now there are pig farms around here. But in this story, working as a first century pig farmer, is clearly meant to illustrate that he had taken on a demeaning and squalid set of circumstances. The story says, He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. In comparison to his meager subsistence, even the slop that the pigs were eating would have been an upgrade. Jesus is painting a picture of a man who is at absolute rock bottom. And the son has a moment of clarity. He reasons that the servants of his father have it better than he does. And that that would be a step up from how he's currently living among the pigs. And so he decides to return to his father's estate, tail between his legs, humble himself, and beg for mercy. Verses 18 to 19, he somewhat rehearses what he's going to say. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. But when the son returns to the father, instead of wanting to disown him, instead of merely taking pity on him, the father welcomes back the son with open arms. He had been lost and is now found. And like we've seen in the first two parables, there is rejoicing in finding that which was lost. Verses 22 to 24, the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The father is giving the best that he has in celebration of his son returning. He is showering him with his best gifts. Again, it is a picture of the great love that God has for us. That a person is never too far removed from the love of the Father to come back home. And that's the heart of the gospel, returning home. All of us sin. All of us are imperfect. All of us want to take what God has given us, what the world has to offer, and to say, give me what's mine, and go off to a faraway land and live like we want to live and do what we want to do and do our own thing. But... Whenever a person is ready to come back, when you're ready to turn back to God, when you're still a long way off, our Father sees us and has compassion. The love of the Father is freely given. We love prodigal son stories. We read books and watch testimonies about people who have had especially debaucherous and decadent lives and then find God. We rejoice in those examples of grace, and we should. But as a reminder, there are two brothers in this story. 
The prodigal son is right in line with the other parables that are in this passage that Pastor Trey talked about. But then we come to the older brother, and it's a radical departure. In the midst of the celebration, and while the other parables point to the rejoicing when the lost is found, the older brother does not rejoice at his younger brother's return. When the servants tell him that his prodigal brother has come back and that his father has thrown a great feast and celebration, the older brother shows envy to what the younger sibling has been given. Verse 28, he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. From the older brother, you see utter disdain and contempt for his younger brother. He doesn't even call him his brother in the passage. He says, your son, this son of yours, he feels like it's unfair. The younger brother has sinned and thrown himself at the mercy of his father and realizing that he's unworthy. But here's the point that's very easy to miss in this parable. The older brother has a heart that is just as cold to the father as his younger brother. He's self-righteous and entitled. And there are a lot of older brothers out there. Again, we love the prodigal son testimonies in our world. But really, those aren't most people's testimonies. Most of us are not out living like we're in Motley Crue and then find Jesus. Most of us are pretty nice people. But there's irony in this story when you consider the audience to whom Jesus is speaking. Pastor Trey talked about this, but again, to remind you of where the passage begins in verses 1 and 2. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. You have the tax collectors and the sinners, the prodigal sons of the community. But then you also see the Pharisees who are there in criticism of Jesus for interacting with these prodigals. And so Jesus tells about this older brother, and he's talking about the Pharisees when he does it. The prodigal son is not a story about a good son and a bad son. It's a story about two paths that ultimately lead to failure. Down on one path is self-indulgence and debauchery. Down the other path is self-righteousness and pride. The prodigal son realizes his sin. But with the older brother, the parable never gives any resolution. In verse 28, when the older brother is angry and refuses to go into the feast, we never see if he decides to go in or not. And I believe that's intentional because it's leaving the option to the audience. The older brother thought that he deserved the good things from his father because he had been obedient. Again, there are a lot of older brothers in the world. Both brothers were living for themselves. The prodigal son lived for the things that he wanted. The older brother lived a rigorous moral life ultimately for himself because of what he thought that it should earn him. 
Now make no mistake. Jesus does want us to live for him and to obey him and to follow him. But we get it backwards when we think that that's the reason why he'll love us. I went to seminary in Chicago. Chicago is a city of prodigal sons. Chicago is a city with lots of people who are not walking with Jesus, who know that they're not walking with Jesus. But my concern in a town like Cisna Park is that there are people who are not walking with Jesus who don't know it. Because we live in a very religious community. We live in a very churchy community. We live in a community where everyone knows what funeral their church will be at. Again, the world loves a good prodigal son story. But the bigger threat in a community like this is being the older brother. The bigger threat is being a good person who doesn't know Jesus. And there are good people we interact with every day in town. And perhaps people in this audience who don't really know Jesus. People who think that they're going to the feast because they've obeyed the commands of the Father and deserve an invitation. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about people within the community, within the body, who are fake followers. They walk the walk and talk the talk, yet they don't really know Jesus. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It is faith that matters. Knowing and believing in Jesus. That no matter how much of a prodigal we are or how much of an older brother we are, we all sin We all sit against the Father and dishonor him. And that all of us come to the Father and say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Jesus is the truly perfect son of the Father. He never rebelled, though he died for the prodigal sons and daughters so that we could be forgiven. But unlike the older brother, he did not live that way out of pride, but out of righteousness and out of honor for his Father in heaven, and so that all could be forgiven in him, who believe in him. No matter how good we are, we don't live up to Christ. And so in that sense, all of us are prodigal sons, desperately in need of a restored relationship with the Father that only Jesus can provide. That is what the prodigal son gets right in the end. Because he realizes he's morally bankrupt. I close with a story of one of the great prodigal sons of history. Again, we love a story of a prodigal son. John Newton, whom Pastor Trey quoted in the beginning, by all accounts had a pretty debaucherous and hedonistic life as a sailor in the 18th century. In his 20s, he was in a ship that was caught up in a tremendous storm. And it was a monumental event in his life that was a catalyst for him professing faith. But after that, Newton went on to become a slave trader. Epilepsy took him away from sailing a few years later. 
he began to more fervently study the scriptures. He would go on to become a pastor in England and serve for over 40 years. The fact that Newton had been a slave trader would become a source of regret later in his life, and he became an outspoken abolitionist in England. He was also a writer of hymns, including the most famous hymn in the English language, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, yet now I see. We call it the parable of the prodigal son. I call it the parable of the two sons. One was lost and became found when he knew of the amazing grace of a loving father. The other stood outside the celebration because to him, the grace wasn't so amazing. Which one are you? Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, I pray for everyone here today and everyone from these two churches, Lord, that we be people who know of the greatness of the grace that comes through the gospel and have faith in Christ and live that faith out, Lord. Lord, that we live for you, for your glory, not because of what it earns us. We live for you because it's good and true. In Jesus' name, amen.